no generation left behind. Turn to somebody and say that. No generation left behind. Father, I pray that they will not hear me, but more, most importantly, they will hear you. I pray, God, that I will get out of the way with all of my quirks and euphemisms and all of my comfort zones. I pray, Lord, that I will step out of this pulpit this morning and you will step in. Use me as conduit. Use me as a vessel to say what you want to say. And when we leave here today, let them not say what a preacher, let them say what a God. Let them say not what a sermon, but what a message Father, I pray, Lord, that they will hear what you want them to hear today more than what I want to say. For all of this, I give you praise in Christ's holy name. And everybody said, amen. amen. I want to talk this morning about no generation left behind. Now, uh, I grew up in an old-time Pentecostal preacher's home back in the holiness movement. Do any of you understand even what I'm talking about right now? Some of you are thinking, what does all that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. For the most part, I would have to term it as hyper-holiness, which meant that just about everything would send you to hell. Now, that's kind of how I grew up. So the best I can describe my upbringing is if you cut your hair, you go to hell. If you wear makeup, you go to hell. If you, uh, if you wore your dress above the knee, girls, you went to hell. If the guys wore their pants above the knee, you went to hell. Um, if you go to the movies, you go to hell. If you swim with the opposite sex, that's right. That's, you, got, you got it by now, right? You go to hell. And if you played softball on Sunday in my church, you go to hell, right? And if you look at a girl the wrong way in my church, you go to hell. And so the, the, the problem with me growing up that way is that we only had one path to heaven, and it was straight and narrow, but we had about 100,000 ways to get to hell. And so as a kid, I just didn't really know which, where I would end up because, I mean, every night I prayed that prayer that a lot of my generation prayed, oh, God, if I've sinned, if I've done anything, I didn't even know that I did, you know, because you could think something and go to hell. You could choose something and go to hell. You could, you could drink something. I mean, just about everything in my generation would send you to hell. And so, um, you know, the, the, my, my friends at school were talking about their eternal security. I had no idea what they were talking about. All I had was eternal insecurity because I was quite sure that if, if the rapture didn't take place on a Sunday or a Wednesday, I would go to hell. I mean, that's kind of how I grew up. I was doing my best, but I wanted the Lord to come right after I'd repented for the fourth time in the altar call. So, you know, in my church, there was hell was preached so hot, and uh, it was such a strong message that you went to the altar every time. So I'm not really sure when I got saved, but I'm pretty sure I was saved off and on a lot of times. Because I, I'm sure now when I got saved, but for, for most of my lifetime growing up, I just thought I would probably go to hell, but I didn't want to. And so I thought I, if I sing louder and pray harder and, you know, read the Bible more, maybe I want, but I wasn't really sure. And I have to be honest with you about that. None of that made me want to be a Christian. And I'm just being honest. None of that made me want to be a Christian. That's not what saved me. But in the midst of all of that, I saw people healed and I couldn't explain it. 
I saw the glory of God settle down in church services on Sunday nights. I saw saints do things that were so supernatural that I knew there was something there that I didn't understand. While I was trying to live up to everyone's expectations and felt like a failure most of the time, I saw the glory of God in an unexplainable way, and that's what captivated me. And I have to tell you, that is why I'm a Christian today. It wasn't the songs that made me a Christian. It wasn't the version of the Bible that made me a Christian. It wasn't the hard preaching that made me a Christian. It wasn't the genre of Pentecost and their their distinctives that made me a Christian. The thing that made me want to serve God is I saw signs and wonders. And that means I saw something that was unexplainable. You know what signs and wonders are? You see a sign that made makes you wonder, how did that man get healed? I saw a blind man healed. How did that man get healed? I saw a man get up out of a wheelchair. How did that man get up out of a wheelchair? At a baptism, I saw a 400-pound man run across a pond. I saw him walk on water. How can that happen? When I had nothing to lean upon except the gospel, I thought, I have to press in. I may not get it right for a while, but I've got to go all the way because there's something very real about serving God and there's something very genuine about pushing into the presence of God. And so I've never really, I was never really bothered when song genres changed. I have my own preference and my own favorites and I was never really bothered when we started, you, when I grew up you were sitting down to worship and now we stand up to worship. That makes no difference to me. I, I don't think God minds either. I was never bothered by new versions of the Bible as long as it's the Bible because uh, I, I was never bothered with if you read it from uh, a book or from a screen. None of that ever bothered me. The only thing that bothers me is when any of these things are substituted for the genuine presence and the glory of God. Songs will never change this world, but the glory of God will. And new songs and modern songs, if they're great songs and they give us, if they give us theology and if they give us a greater experience with God, then thank the Lord. But songs and musicians and coolness and lights, none of that is going to affect the world. But I want to tell you, in the midst of that, if that's how that generation gets God, and you give me a young generation that is turned on to Jesus Christ, you will impact this world in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. You see, when you win an adult to the Lord, go go to the next screen if you will. When you win an adult to the Lord, you're only saving a soul. But when you win a young person to the Lord, you are saving a soul and a life. Because I came to God early, I dated different girls than I would have dated. I married a person that was in the church. I made choices. I went to a Christian college instead of a secular college. When you reach someone early, the earliest you can reach someone, with Christ, the more of their life that you're saving. You're not just saving souls then. You are saving marriages and saving homes and saving lives and saving life choices. We have got to be committed to reaching the young at an early age with the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ, Messiah, and soon coming King. We've got to reach them as early as we can. Here's a stat by Barna on the next screen, if you'll you'll turn there. 
between the age of 14, there's a 32% chance that an individual will accept Christ. After that point, it drops to 6% for the rest of their life. So the greatest opportunity that anyone will ever have in your local area, in these five counties that you're sitting in the middle of, the greatest opportunity that they will ever have to reach Christ is if you reach them before they're 14 years of age. That's the prime time to reach them. After that, it drops 6%. And the older they get, the more difficult it is to reach them. We have to reach them early. See, I, I think that we, we don't realize this, but if Jesus was a church of God minister and he had to fill out a minister's report, do you know which, which box he would have to check? He would have to check the box marked youth pastor. That's the only one that would fit him. He would have to check the box marked youth pastor. Go to the next slide, if you will. Most people don't realize that all of the disciples except one was a teenager. Jesus did not call old men to stand beside of him. Jesus called young teenage boys that we now call the 12 disciples. Now, we got to watch them grow up, not in the Bible, but in history, we got to watch them grow up. Most of them never saw old age. Most of them died a martyr's death when they were very young. This program is brought to you by the partners of Brian Cutshaw and Church Trainer Ministries. Please help us pray that the Lord will continue to send us more partners so we can expand his kingdom around the world. But Jesus calls a bunch of teenagers. Now, the Bible does not give the specific ages of any of the disciples. It only gives the, the specific age of Jesus when he started his ministry. And Jesus was a young man. Jesus was 30 years of age when he started his ministry. He died at the age of 33 on the cross. And so every one of his disciples were younger than him, with the exception of one, which was Simon Peter. Now, how do we know this? Well, we can see through the lens of history and through scriptures, the scenes surrounding them, and that helps us to understand. First of all, we have to look at the marriage customs. Now, at the time of Jesus, when a young man turned 18, his father and his mother, uh, or excuse me, his father and a girl's father prearranged their marriage. Now, Jesus, being the son of God, did not marry but almost every other Jewish man married at the age of 18 because that was a prearranged marriage of their time. But according to the New Testament, there's only one disciple that's ever mentioned as being married, and that is Simon Peter. He's the only one. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about his mother-in-law in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14, but Simon Peter is the only one that has a wife out of all the disciples. No other mention, which lets us know that most of them were probably under the age of 18. You think, well, you know, you know, Brian, that's kind of a stretch. Do you have anything else to go on? Oh, yeah, I've got lots more, so let's keep going, right? So not only was the marriage customs, there was also the tax customs. According to Exodus chapter 30, every Jewish man has to pay a temple tax at the age of 20. Now, that has been going on since the time of the Old Testament. There's only two of the disciples, or actually one disciple in Jesus, that has to go to the temple and pay taxes. You probably heard the story of Peter getting his tax money out of the fish's mouth. The Bible only records Jesus and Peter going to pay the temple tax, which would let you know that the other disciples were under the age of 20. 
because none of them, there's no mention of that. Now, Jesus talks about taxes. He talks about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God, but never is there any mention of any of the disciples only, uh, only paying taxes other than Jesus and Peter. Now, when Jesus calls all of these disciples into ministry, almost every one of them exclusively, because most of them were cousins or from the same fishing village, almost every one of these boys are working for their father. There's only one exception to that, and that is Simon Peter. When Jesus visits Simon Peter on his own boat, Peter is the only one with an established, uh, with, with an established business. In this fishing village, Capernaum, Peter had his own boat. Now, this was not a huge industry. I mean, they would bring the boats in and prop them up against a tree at night. So do the math. It's not that big of a boat, right? But Peter was the only one that had his own boat. The rest of these guys, James and John, are working for their father Zebedee. Their mother uh, Salome is trying to get in their business all the time. These are boys, 15, 16-year-old boys that Jesus is calling into ministry. Not only that, um, you, you can see their educational customs. Now, the way Jewish men and women were educated in their day was you got to go to school up until the age of 15. At the age of 15, you then became either an apprentice for an uncle or a father or some family business. You became an apprentice. That is why Jesus is called the carpenter, the carpenter because his father Joseph was the carpenter, and Jesus worked in the carpenter's shop after the age of 15. That was very typical of their day. So almost all of these disciples were still living at home, working at home, with the exception of Simon Peter. Now, one one possible exception would be Matthew, who the Bible only refers to him as, as an occupation. None of the other ones even have occupations other than being fishermen. So the, the occupation of Matthew is a tax collector, but if you understand he is sitting in a tax office collecting money, and if you understand customs, you realize he's not out there collecting taxes. That was only designated to the older people. Most likely he worked for his father taking the money when people came to the booth. So he also was most likely an apprentice of his father. So when you look at all of this, you see these young men that Jesus has chosen, these young teenagers that Jesus has chosen, and then listen to the word that they call Jesus. Whenever the disciples refer to Jesus, you hear them call him one of three words. They either call him rabbi, or they call him teacher, or they call him master. Now, we call him master because he's the savior of our soul, but none of that had happened yet. There had been no resurrection. There had been no cross. None of that had happened yet. They're calling him master because each of them has signed up. Now, a rabbi could only take students at the age of 30. Jesus is 30 years old when he begins to choose the disciples and takes these students. Now, Jesus is teaching the rabbis, so he's in rabbinical school at the age of 12. Jesus is now teaching the rabbis, training the rabbis. They, they cannot believe the wisdom that he has, so that we know that that continued on, and then at the age of 30, Jesus takes on these 12 students, with the exception of him including one older uh, disciple, which was Simon Peter. And that's because his brother Andrew brought him and said, I think we found the Messiah. And Peter left everything to follow Christ. There's also the family customs. Now, 
James and John were brothers. They were reportedly from the scriptures hot-tempered young men, very impulsive, very immature. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. Now you guess why he did that. That's what the Bible says that Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And then you have hot-tempered Peter to go along with that, the guy who cuts the ear off the soldier, the guy who rebukes Christ. I mean, the guy who says, I'll never, I'll never betray you. And then he betrays him three times before the rooster crows. I mean, that's Peter, very impulsive. Well, the sons of thunder, this shows their level of immaturity. In the book of Luke chapter 9, Jesus is is preaching in, in a Samaritan town, and the people reject him. Now, the Bible says the reason they reject him is because Jesus wasn't trying very hard. He was actually trying to get to Jerusalem. But when the town did not receive him in the synagogue, James and John, you can read this story, it's a great story in Luke 9. James and John went to Jesus and said, come on, just let us call down fire from heaven and kill them all. I mean, they wanted to pull an Elijah moment on them, right? And Jesus says, wait a minute, boy. The Bible says Jesus had to turn and rebuke these two teenage boys. Now, their mother is already involved because uh, Salome is trying to, or Salome is trying to get them to sit on the right and the left. Why would she be doing that? Because she wants her boys to look important. They're not important. They're hot-headed, teenage, impulsive, immature kids. And she says, well, if one sits on the right and one sits on the left, every time they see Jesus, they'll think my boys have something going on. We all know that's not the case, but eventually, Jesus did not choose any of these because they were smart. He did not choose. The only one that was educated in the whole disciples was Judas Iscariot, and you see how that turned out, right? He's the only, he is the only educated disciple of all of them, and that is a fact. He is the only Pharisee that Jesus chose. He's the only one that studied in higher education out of all of the disciples, and he turned out to be a bad egg. So Jesus is not choosing these disciples because they're bright, they're brilliant. Jesus is choosing them for one reason, because he understands the deposit that he is about to put inside of them. And he knows that when the Holy Spirit gets involved with these young people, they will turn the world upside down. I got to tell you, I was scared to death of God as a kid, and I'm just being honest with you, that my church preached hell so strong, they didn't preach heaven hardly at all. I'd never heard a sermon on grace. I'd never heard a sermon on love. I mean, I was so out of balance with the gospel. I was just trying my best to get to heaven, thinking I was never going to make it. But at eight years old, I was laying on my back in a little church of God in Georgia. I was laying on my back, and my Sunday school teacher, Barbara Hansen was sitting beside of me and all of a sudden something happened that changed my life. As an eight-year-old kid, I started speaking in a heavenly language and praying in a language I've never learned. And when I got up, I was shaking and I was shaking for the next three days. And every time I would think about it, I would start speaking in that heavenly language again. And when I tell you something, when that happens to you, you're wrecked. When that happens to you, you are ruined. When that happens to you, you are messed up. It wasn't the preaching, and it wasn't the version of the Bible, and it wasn't the songs. It was the deposit that God
God put inside of me that changed my life forever, and I am still messed up by it. I am still wrecked. I am still pursuing it. Once you taste the glory, you cannot go back. You want more and more and more, and God is not trying to give another generation cool lights and songs. God is trying to get them to hear the greatest story ever told in a way they can understand it because he knows that when the Holy Spirit gets inside of them, they too will turn the world upside down for his glory. If you believe that, give God praise in his house. See, they were called those who turned the world upside down. That's what they were called. That next screen will show you that. These guys who were, the, who were called this were called this as far away as Greece. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts chapter 17 is preaching in Greece. So think about this. He's in Thessalonica, Greece. He's 1,800 miles from where Jesus preached. He is 1,800 miles from where the Holy Spirit fell. He's all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. But when he gets there with the message, they rejected the message. Now, he won. You read the book of First and Second Thessalonians, so he ended up planting a church there. But when he first arrived at town, you know what they said? Those young guns who turned the world upside down are here too now. 1,800 miles away without social media, without radio and TV and fake news and all of that that goes along with it, without any of that, 1,800 miles away, they were already affecting the world. These teenage evangelists that were seeing signs and wonders everywhere they went were already messing with the world. Those who turned the world upside down is what they were called. You see, a, this, this power generated, or the power rather generated in youth, the power that's generated in them is so passionate, so unchained, that when young people get turned on to God, they become an unstoppable force. Now, I love older people, and obviously I told you I have five grandkids, so you know which category I'm in, right? But can I tell you something? The older I get, the fewer unchurched friends I have. I am on the Council of 18, if any of you even know what that means. You know, I, I, I run in church circles. I run with church people. I run in the, I, I, I preach in churches. I work with pastors. I'm the president of a Bible college. So you think about this. I have to work hard to, to make friends with unchurched people because my whole world is church. And I think that is what we're seeing happening, that, that's what we're seeing taking place right now across the whole church world. I'm seeing a shift. I'm seeing a shift to something that looks kind of like a youth movement, but it really isn't a youth movement. I'm seeing churches adapt to bring the message of Christ to the forefront to another generation. And I'll tell you why I think that. I don't think it's a church thing. I don't think it's a denomination thing. I don't even think it's a pastor thing. I think it's a God thing. I'm seeing it everywhere I go. And you know why I think it's a God thing? Because God knows that if this world is ever going to get one, we're going to have to reach teenagers and and young people and college students who know the people in the world who can reach them, their own peers. We 
don't just need another church revival in a church. We need a revival in a high school. We need a revival on a college campus. We need to stamp out higher criticism and liberal thinkers all across this country. We need a revival in state universities. We need a revival in Washington, D.C. We need a revival in Hollywood. We need a revival. We need a revival in California. We need revivals among influencers of the world. And it's not just going to happen in the holy huddle with saints singing the same songs, reading the same scriptures, and shouting one more time around the altar. Thank God that we still have that. I'm not against any of that. But it's going to take more than that to change the world we're in. But give me a young army. Give me young people like Jesus chose that get filled with the deposit of the Holy Spirit. They're bold. They're brassy. They don't care what color their hair is. And they don't care if you like their clothes. They wear clothes that we used to throw away. And now you got to pay extra for ho- for jeans with holes in them. You know what? They don't care. They're radical. And they're smart. They've gotten more information than any generation before them. They're the brightest of the brightest. They're the smartest of the smart. You fill them with the Holy Ghost and you can change the world. You fill them with the power of the gospel and there will be no stopping them. Thank you so much for supporting our ministry. If this has blessed you, please say a prayer for us. And if you would like to give, we have four ways that you can do that. You can give online at briancutshaw.com or if you're a PayPal user, just PayPal us at Church Trainer. Or you can also give through the mail at P.O. Box 267, Georgetown, Tennessee, 37336. Or if you're a Venmo user, you can Venmo us also at Church Trainer. Thank you, and God bless you. And may the Lord multiply your seed. Now back to Hope in the Word.